Well, remember, we're in a sermon series uh, approaching the end as we've used the season of Advent to, um, to be the structure for our series. And it began something like this, um, Lord, if you're going to come and judge, and I want you to come and judge all those other jerky people with the specks in their eye because I like justice done to others. And I usually like to ignore the plank in my own eye. On the other hand, if I am liable to justice too, then Lord, come and convict me. Convict me of my personal rebellion and disobedience and pride and arrogance and having to have things my way, which is no way at all to live. Come and convict me so that I will want to come and gather with the others, with the other lost ones, the last ones, the least ones, to meet my Lord at the waters of baptism in order that in my new life in Christ, this morning's sermon topic in this series, in order that in my new life in Christ, you, Lord Jesus, will come and purify me. Therefore, Lord Jesus, and we will celebrate in just 24 hours, Come and dwell, Lord, among us and in us, even today. I want you to think with me about two women I have known. One story is told in the Bible, and I met her that way through the Bible. The other story is told from the Bible, and I met her in Rock Hill, where I grew up in the upstate, when I was about 12 years old, I think. These are the stories of Mary and Gertrude. I hope it's my story, too. I hope it's your story, too. If it's not, it really needs to become your story, too. Because, you know, you can get very, very lost in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, business, which is a good thing, becomes busyness, which is not a good thing. Money becomes an idol. Absolutes become relatives. Relationships are about control and power, not about love and care for another. We rationalize and excuse our behavior. We live in denial. We refuse to get better. It's our way or the highway. And then maybe we wonder, maybe I do need God in my life because I'm not doing it very well on my own. So somewhere along that journey, we decide we'll call up God and tell him, come, I need you now. Well, maybe I should get myself a little presentable first, we think, so he can't say no to me. I hope you hear the power and the control in that attempt at relationship, even with God. Yeah, yeah. Do, do we get ourselves presentable so that the Lord can come and make his home in us? Or do, do I get the Lord so that I can get myself presentable so the Lord will make his home in us or in me? Because I can't get myself presentable. Only the Lord can get us presentable. 
It's a chicken or the egg kind of dilemma, but it's important to get it right. We're not presentable without the Lord. Or do we get the Lord so we can be presentable, but we can't get the Lord unless we feel like we're presentable? No, what we need to discover is the the journey of surrender, humility to offer ourselves just as I am, all the grease and grime and all, even though it's not a very pretty sight. Well, as I said, as I began, this is a reflection, uh, thoughts on two women who show us the way, show us how, show us what we are to become. Mary, precious Mary, if you had heard the whole of the gospel story this morning, but you know it well, it's in the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, her cousin, that the angel Gabriel comes to Nazareth and speaks to probably a teenager whose name was Mary. Mary has a supernatural Holy Spirit kind of experience, obviously, with this angel. As the angel speaks to her and says, Greetings, you are highly favored. Why is this young girl highly favored? We need to know what that's about. And so Gabriel tells Mary that she will be with child in a supernatural way. She will give birth to a son, and he is to have the name Jesus, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And Mary responds to that, and we begin to discover the quality of this personality, this person whom we could learn a lot from in order that we could become like her. She says, how will this be? It's a question of exclamation and surprise, not doubt. Just how will this be? Hear the faith in that, the confidence in the certainty, even in the questioning. How will this be? And the angel answers her, it will be a mystery. It will be a mystery. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So Mary receives this incredible revelation. Um, Mary becomes pregnant in a mysterious, supernatural fashion that we do not presume to understand. And Mary is going to bear the child of the Lord Most High God. And you think she might want to be just a little puffed up and self right just about that and the story goes on as we hear it this morning first she says okay so be it let it be according to your purpose i am the lord's servant no arguing just availability and then mary gets up And the scripture says, as we heard it this morning, hurries to a town in the hill country. So she's got to make a climb from where she is. She's going into the hill country of Judea from Nazareth. And she's going to her cousin Elizabeth's house, who is six months pregnant with John, whom we know as John the Baptist. More understanding about this quality of Mary as a person that we can emulate It's not about her. 
even in the midst of that extraordinary revelation to her, it's about someone else. She hurries to the hill country and spends time with her cousin Elizabeth. Well, she can't escape the reality and the fact of what is happening because Elizabeth, when she greets Mary at the doorway, the child growing in her womb <laughs> leaps for joy, Elizabeth says. She has a supernatural revelation, signs and wonders kind of experience herself because she knows and understands that this is a leap of joy from the womb, this eager anticipation that John the Baptist, who will be the herald of Messiah, is already, can't wait to get out of the womb to do what he will be doing. And so Elizabeth says, uh, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. More about Mary, because when she hears Elizabeth's excitement and John the Baptist in the womb's excitement, the six-month pregnant uh, John the Baptist, or six-month pregnant Elizabeth with John the Baptist, Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord. It is not about her. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then the story moves forward and says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth three months. Well, how gracious of her. Left her own home, good distance away. Stayed three months with Elizabeth, obviously to the completion of the pregnancy, to be there to care for Elizabeth, minister to Elizabeth, to add two more helping hands for Elizabeth. So beautiful, so lovely. Mary goes to serve Elizabeth, her cousin. Can we become like Mary, that vessel of receptivity, in order that we can become like Jesus, Christ-like ourselves? Mary teaches us this. Life's meaning is about relationships, it's about others. And going the extra mile, the extra steps, up to the hill country, in her case, staying three months, caring for Elizabeth, that's what life's about. That's where we find the fullness of life in that kind of self-sacrifice and putting others first. And Mary, who is the rejoicer and the praiser, she is more than willing, apparently on any time and in any circumstance, simply to stop and praise God for who he is and what he has done. And Mary, the faithful believer, which does not mean she necessarily understands all that's going on. How could she? Or how could we either about our own circumstances of our life? But Mary fully believes. And she's also open to the Holy Spirit. She's open to signs and wonders and supernatural occurrences, realizing this is a whole lot bigger world than the physical world of sight and sense and touch and smell. There's a big world out there that God has made. Mary, who is humble, pure, available. How she knew so much as a teenager, I don't know. But I do know that I hope the Lord is making me more like Mary. I'm afraid, though, I still have a lot of Gert in me. Gertrude, the other woman I wanted to reflect with you about this morning. You've heard me speak of her before, but I simply could not get away from her as I prepared for this morning to share with you her life again. 
I met Gert when I think I was 12 years old when she came to Rock Hill. She was an unusual kind of woman. How many Episcopalian evangelist women have you known in your life? How many has the Episcopal Church known in its life? And yet she was a woman and she was an evangelist of the highest caliber and of the most beautiful degree. And Google her sometime and listen to some of her teachings that are still on, available on the Internet. She will bless your socks off. The daughter of a successful New York City CEO. She had great inherited wealth and moved in the highest of the social circles of New York City and of this country. She had everything money could buy, and yet she acknowledges that her father failed to give her loving presence or affirmation or guidance. She was not loved as a child. Instead, she turned to alcohol and drugs. She had discovered that, to, that in her father's eyes, even if she tried to do her best, it was never good enough. She always came up short. She just gave up. It was a hopeless quest to try to get his approval. So growing up in a suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, she described that childhood as a childhood of isolation, loneliness, devoid of other children, and devoid of childhood play. And so as an adult in her middle years, she had three relatively quick marriages, marriages that were quick and marriages that failed. And she had, she says, alcohol in the evening and pills in the morning, which she described as making for a very short day. And she had all the money she needed to perpetrate what she called the living death of her life. In the midst of this, she encountered a Christian couple world impactors in Jesus' name, obviously, who tried to befriend her and reach out to her. And one night they even had her over for dinner. But before joining them, as she tells the story, she pre, uh, proceeded to get as drunk as possible. And during dinner, she taunted their beliefs and did her best to mock and offend them. And then let me let her tell her story in her own words from there. After that dinner, two days later, I returned to the Midwest. In my house was six weeks of accumulated mail. I went through the first class mail and found a short note from this couple welcoming me home. This amazed me. Why did they care? They'd only seen me one evening and I had been a total mess. Why did they care? This was my initial introduction, she writes, to the courtesy of Christ. They went on to say that every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, they were sitting down to pray for me. This rocked me. Pray for me? So far as I knew, no one in my whole life had ever prayed for me. And God knows I never prayed for anyone. And I also remembered these people were not fools. They were educated, well-educated folks is what she's trying to say. They were not sitting, though, down praying to nobody. They closed by saying that under separate cover, they were sending me a little magazine. If I had time, they wished I would look at it. I had time, 
So I went through the second class mail that had accumulated, opened it, found it and opened it. And on the first page was a one-page article entitled, It's Never Too Late to Start Over. I read the article. I stood up and dropped the book. Did something I'd never done in my life before. I went over to my bed and got down on my knees. And I said, if you're anywhere around, I wish you would please help me. Because I sure need it. And in about 20 minutes, it was all over. Of course, there are no words. All I know is that it was more like a spiritual shower bath than anything. I felt cleansed. I also felt welcomed. I had never had a home and never had never made one, and I felt welcomed. I also felt forgiven, and I knew exactly who this was. I who had never known anything about God in my whole life, knew exactly who this was. And after a while, I stood up and I said, Thank you very much, sir. I don't know anything about this, and I'm going to have to start from scratch, but I'll tell you one thing. I'll never take another drop of liquor as long as I live, and I never have. And people are always saying to me, I wish I had your character Well, I don't have any character. It doesn't make sense that a woman of 53 would get down on her knees and 20 minutes later get up with character. Something had been added all right, a plus, and a plus is in the shape of the cross. And you and I call him Jesus Christ. She finishes, I started from scratch. I prayed, our Father who art, and then I stopped. Our Father, not theirs, ours. Suddenly I was a sister to everybody. Suddenly I thought about my own sex. With the thought of women, I thought about cooking, which I knew nothing about. But calling my book dealer in Chicago, I said, Mr. Chandler, I want a Bible and a copy of The Joy of Cooking. (laughs) My God, what's happened to you, asked Mr. Chandler. My God has happened to me, I said, and he had. In her 53rd year, it's never too late, she discovered God was not dead. And through the miracle of Christ's love and power, drugs, liquor, alcohol, despair itself could be conquered. So she wrote a book called The Late Liz. And she wrote in that book, and in standing aside and looking back at this woman I used to be, it was more and more possible to detach myself, to view her in the third person. She was she, and I am I. Siamese twins, perhaps, one of whom must die for the other to live. What a profound description of the unregenerate life made over and made new. Story of two women this morning under the heading of Come and Purify, Lord, to acquire the purity of heart that Mary had from a very, very early time in her life, obviously, to be the perfect receptacle to receive God's only Son. And the story of Gert, a much older woman 
who by her own way and her own journey discovered the same truths that Mary knew at a young age. God is God. She is not. Jesus loves her. This she knew. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, describes our life this way. It's so fitting in the context of the collect we heard this morning, the prayer at the beginning of the prayers when we prayed that uh, God would purify our conscience, purify us by his daily visitation. This is a work in progress that goes on through our lives. That your son, Jesus, at his coming may what? Find in us a mansion prepared for himself. Lewis says it this way, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you imagine or the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Gerpa Hannah, as you've heard me often say or pray, and those things that are repeated a lot are worth hearing and taking to heart, perhaps. The prayer that she brought from a tradition of the 19th century, apparently, she attributed, as she said, to a long-dead slave. So it's from the African-American tradition of the American South, I suppose. And it's this prayer, Dear God, I ain't what I want to be. How true. And I sure ain't what I ought to be. And I ain't what I'm going to be. But thanks, Lord. I ain't what I used to be. Lord, come and judge. Yes. But when you come as judge, first come and convict. And come and gather us, Lord, at the waters of baptism. Baptism into the life of grace and the life of Jesus. Gather us, Lord, and come and purify us because you have convicted us so that you can come and dwell in us. I pick up bad habits from John Scott, and one is uh, ending sermons. I had this hit me all day and, uh, or this morning, and John you know, ends sermons, Amen, and the congregation says, Amen. Amen me, so be it. So let me enter this in John Scott style for all of us. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's stand.